Hello all, welcome to another episode of Strangest Fiction. Today we've got some big industry news, including the comeback of one of the greatest 90s franchises of all time. And no, I'm not talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I'm talking about 90s comedy buddy cop gold. We've also got some big shows to talk about that are dropping this week on streaming services that I'd like to shout out, including the long-awaited prequel to Yellowstone featuring Harrison Ford. Afterwards, we'll top off the show with our deep dive topic of the day, exploring how eating habits have evolved over time, all the way from the Paleolithic era to the Greeks to modern day. Answering questions like, were our ancestors mostly carnivorous? How many meals a day did they eat? And how did we get to the point of eating three square meals a day? Now, before the show starts, a few items of housekeeping. If you'd like to follow me on social, I'm at Strangest Fiction Podcast on Instagram and TikTok. And you can engage with me there. Ask me any questions you like. Let me know what you think of the show. And most importantly, if you're listening to the show, please hit that subscribe button and leave a review. That really helps us uh, get discovered by more people and helps the show grow and helps me make more content and awesome shows for you. Thank you and enjoy the show. All right, let's get into some news this week, starting with an article from Hypebeast.com. Quote, after 15 long years, Rush Hour 4 is now officially coming. During a recent appearance at the Red Sea International Film Festival in Saudi Arabia, Jackie Chan revealed that the long-awaited sequel is now in development. Now, this is huge. Us fans of Rush Hour have long-awaited this fourth movie it has that i know of did not have many rumors or anything floating around the internet like a lot of these other revivals do so this is completely out of left field also kind of crazy that it got announced at a saudi arabian film festival there's actually quite a big list of celebrities that attended this film festival it's giving live tournament it's giving uh ronaldo heading to saudi arabia to play soccer it's emulating a pattern that we're starting to see where Middle Eastern money is starting to mix heavily with American entertainment. Whether that's good or bad, TBD. We'll see. We'll see what impact that has. Uh, I only see foresee it increasing more and more. I think we're going to see this uh, happen to video games, to more sports, more movies and TV. This mix between the Middle East and Hollywood, I think, is just going to continue down that path. So, interesting way to announce it. Also, perhaps most interesting and the biggest question mark around this film is how in the world are they going to pull this off? If you've ever seen the movies, you know that they are hilarious. You also know that they are very edgy and something that could only exist in the 90s. In today's world of pronouns and cancel culture, how is Lee and Carter going to navigate the comedy? This is going to take an immense effort on the writing team to strike a fine balance between creating comedy that will not get everyone canceled and everyone outraged but stays true to the characters so that is going to be quite the balance quite the uh achievement if they are able to pull it off then we are all going to be super stoked and excited because we've been we're we're anxious to like this movie we want to like this movie We are desperate to have anything like this again since it's been 15 years since they've teamed up. So we have a crowd and a fan base who, unlike the superhero movies, which are just 
coming out you know by the dozens a year this is something we don't get very often these 90s buddy cop films such as die hard rush hour even going back to the 80s uh or bad boys in the 90s like there's just this great run of buddy cop films that you don't really see today they all had more macho alpha comedy and we're just gonna have to see how they handle it but i really hope they pull it off uh very curious to see how they do so though so um that wraps it up for rush hour four on to the next bit of news which is wonder woman 3 possibly getting the axe as james gunn takes over all right so this one's pretty juicy and has a lot of moving parts but as you may know james gunn has recently moved over from guardians galaxy marvel side of the house to dc dc has canceled a lot of films lately including batgirl and other projects and seemingly has not been able to compete at the uh, cinema and ticket sales and general consensus with marvel marvel is greatly outpacing them and dominating them in, in every way perhaps with the exception of Batman, maybe Suicide Squad. Um, those are probably the two exceptions there. So let's get into it via IGN.com. Quote, so as for the story yesterday in The Hollywood Reporter, some of it's true, some of it's half true, some of it's not true, and some of it we haven't decided yet whether it's true or not. Although the first month at DC has been fruitful, building the next 10 years of story takes time and we're still just at beginning. Peter and I chose to helm DC Studios, knowing we were coming into a fractious environment, both in the stories being told and in the audience itself, and there would be an unavoidable transitional period as we moved into telling a cohesive story across film, TV, animation, and gaming. As you can see, James Gunn neither confirms nor denies uh, the rumors. He says partial truths may be there, full truths may be there, he's still sorting it out himself. So that leaves us to speculate, and apparently what many people are saying is that it's just part of the new creative direction this is the reason that wonder woman possibly might be getting canceled but in an exclusive with rap.com patty jenkins who directed the first two iterations of wonder woman presented a different picture she says that she presented a pitch that the execs didn't agree with and that james gunn ended up siding with the execs and this pissed her off according to one insider jenkins refused and let de luca and abdi quote, know that they were wrong and that they didn't understand her, didn't understand the character, didn't understand character arcs, and didn't understand what Jenkins was trying to do. To underscore her point, according to the first insider, Jenkins sent an email to De Luca that ended with a link to the Wikipedia definition of character arc. Wow, passive-aggressive much? Jenkins was told that if she wanted to come back and pitch a different direction for Wonder Woman, the studio would hear it. She stood firm to her vision and responded that if they didn't want her to do the treatment, she wasn't going to do a different one and would instead just move on to her next film. Okay, so we have kind of the DC corporate version of events, which is basically saying, oh, you know, Wonder Woman 3 just might not fit into our new creative direction. Then we have the way less filtered version coming from Patty Jenkins via therap.com saying, uh, no, they didn't like my pitch and they wanted to fall in line with James Gunn's new vision. And basically I said, you can take it as it is or F off, right? So it's essentially a Venn diagram of the same story, but uh, just kind of different spins from both sides of how it occurred. Now I got to say, sending the definition of the term character arc to execs is pretty passive aggressive. And while I think Patty Jenkins did an awesome job with Wonder Woman 1, I think, generally speaking, her story does need to fall within James Gunn's broader vision. This is why they're bringing him on. What has happened in the past 
hasn't been successful with the exception of probably Batman and maybe the first Wonder Woman. And look, I get it. She was probably working on this prior to him coming aboard. So that has to be very tough. If you put your heart and soul into a script, you're developing it. All of a sudden, the execs in suits say, hey, we're bringing on this guy uh, to change the whole direction of DC, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, well, look, I'm three-fourths into the story. I'm not changing what I've done already. I've, I've worked hard on this. It's a good story. And then, you know, you hand in this thing that's probably taken years of blood, sweat, and tears and thought, and it just becomes a punch to the gut. So I don't blame her for doing what she did, but I do think it makes sense that all these stories going forward need to fit within James Gunn's creative direction. This is why they're bringing him on is because he is successful. He's been successful and they need to empower him to tell the stories and weave the art character arcs together that he wants to. So, you know, maybe it's just a time matter of time of bringing someone new in to take over Wonder Woman and, you know, we give Patty her flowers for what she was able to do, but it's probably good that she's leaving this project to someone else who will work within James Gunn's broader vision. But, you know what, we're never going to know exactly how good her script was unless it gets leaked. For now, we are stuck with third-hand accounts and assumptions. All right, so... That wraps it up for Wonder Woman. Moving on to the next bit of news. Emily Blunt says she is bored with the stereotypical, quote, strong female lead roles. Emily Blunt is getting blunt about what kinds of scripts she will immediately reject. Blunt, who stars in an executive producer's gritty prime video series, quote, The English, slammed the concept of, quote, strong female lead character. Quote, it's the worst thing ever when you open a script and read the word strong female lead, Blunt told the Telegraph. That makes me roll my eyes. I'm already out. I'm bored, she added. Quote, those roles are written as incredibly stoic. You spend the whole time acting tough and saying tough things, end quote, via IndieWire.com. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. I believe that Hollywood and movie lovers as a whole saw that for decades the females' roles in Hollywood were not always very good. That many times they took kind of these secondary supportive roles to the male protagonist and they tried to right a wrong essentially, which you know, good, that comes from a good place, right? However, the pendulum has now swung so far the other way that a female lead essentially has to be an ass-kicking, tough, alpha chick character, or the directors and writers are afraid that they will be seen as anti-woman. They've essentially equated a strong female with a very specific character arc and character type which has reduced the amount of diversity and creativity found within women roles in Hollywood. So essentially they've tried to correct a wrong, but by doing so they've essentially stereotyped all strong women as one single formula, which essentially they've, they've tried to right a wrong by creating a new wrong that we have to deal with. And they've said, oh, now we can't have women that have a vulnerable side. It can't have women that have multitudes, right? Why not have a woman that can, uh, kick ass and cry right like there's it came from a good place but uh the result has been subpar and i think that's what emily blunt is hitting on here lana del rey the singer made a similar point years ago albeit in a way less politically correct way and she was blasted for it right Emily Blunt's careful approach to her comments seems to have garnered no negative reaction that I've seen online. I think people can generally agree with, with what she's saying. It's just going to take more thoughtful writers, thoughtful approach to these characters. I think Jessica Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty 
Pam Greer and Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown and pretty much any of the female protagonists in Ayao Miyazaki's Studio Ghibli movies are perfect examples of strong female leads that have deeper, more complex personalities that aren't just trying to kick down doors and take names, but are badass women, yet they aren't turning and looking into the camera and saying, see, see what I can do? See how I can hang with the boys? They are strong in a very natural and organic way, and they have lots of layers. This is this can be said of both male and female protagonist roles. Simply, we just have too many archetypes, too many one-note characters. Anytime a character has contradictions, they instantly become more interesting. If we have, say, Pablo Escobar, a classic Colombian narco-trafico dealing drugs, killing thousands, we say bad guy, right? But then we see shots and scenes of him going to mass, being a father, being a husband, giving back to the poor in his community. Instantly, we have a character we can't take our eyes off. So I definitely think Emily Blunt's onto something here, but it's something that is universal and could be said for character writing of any sex, of any genre, that we gotta have more layers, more contradictions, more humanity, and that's gonna make for a better picture. All right, moving on to our last bit of news here. The Bee Gees film is to be helmed by Hustlers director Lorene Scafaria. Hustlers director Lorene Scafaria will direct the untitled Bee Gees movie. Scafaria is replacing John Carney, who will no longer be on the project due to scheduling conflicts. John Logan from Gladiator and Hugo wrote the most recent draft of the script. GK Films, Amblin and Sister will produce the untitled feature. Paramount, Amblin and Sister is co-financing the Paramount Distributing Worldwide. Barry Gibb will executive produce. Now, if you've ever seen Hustlers, you know that Lorreen knows her stuff and she can do a great job. Now you might be saying, why waste this talent on the Bee Gees? Aren't they just that flashy disco band who made the intro song for Saturday Night Fever? Yeah, that's them. But you know what? They have actually a a huge library of great music and they have quite a complex story. Their story is one of a quick rise and fall from fame. Their flashy suits and disco-like music ended up posing a threat to the rockers of the 60s and 70s who saw it as sort of feminine and flashy and anti-rock. They were catapulted in the film with John Travolta's infamous hip-shaking pizza-eating intro and Saturday Night Fever, and then they crashed hard. There were affairs with 25-year-old housekeepers, late-night speedbenders, and all kinds of drama and personal conflict in their lives that I think will end up making for a very interesting story. So we'll, we'll stay on top of that as we get more information. And that wraps it up for all of this week's news. Let's move on to the weekly releases for Monday, December 12th through Sunday, December 17th. Wednesday, December 14th, National Treasure Edge of History is dropping on Disney+. Jess Valenzuela's life is turned upside down when an enigmatic stranger gives her a clue to a centuries-old treasure that might be connected to her long-dead father. Jess has a knack for solving puzzles, and her skills are put to the test as she and her friends follow a series of clues hidden in American artifacts and landmarks. But can Jess outsmart a black market antiquities dealer in a race to find her history's greatest lost treasure and unbury the truth about her family's past? Very exciting for us National Treasure fans. However, lots of red flags and concerns. I made an episode last week all about this, about what kind of is giving me pause around this show. I am hoping... It does a great job, but I am very fearful it will not pull it off. Namely, because Nicolas Cage isn't in it, and he's what made the movie. But also, from the trailer, we're getting 
hints and vibe a vibe that the writers are trying to take this into a more serious direction which what made the original national treasure movies so great was that they knew what they were they were unabashedly popcorn flicks that very loosely mixed uh kind of conspiracy theories and mythology with real life history so you got a taste and got to learn some of these cool historical facts about America and its founding. But you also got to dive into the fantastical and go on this kind of wild adventure with Nicolas Cage. It did not take itself too seriously. I think Disney was probably surprised by the overwhelmingly positive reaction and hardcore fan base around the series. And that's because we long for films like this. Not every film needs to take itself so seriously. And what's worse is when a film does try and take itself seriously and falls, it's a complete failure. Whereas a film that doesn't do so, that knows what it is, and maybe produces just an okay film, we're not as disappointed by it because we weren't set up for that expectation of it being some serious treaty on life or some serious you know message about history and culture and all these things so i really hope they do pull it off i'm afraid that they might not do so so we will see though uh starting wednesday i think two episodes drop um on wednesday so we'll get a good taste of what the show's to be about moving on friday december 16th litvinko let me try that again friday december 16th litvinko there we go um, I'm trying to say his Russian name like like as if it were a Spanish name, but this show is dropping on AMC Plus and Sundance Now via Variety, written by George Kay and produced by Patrick Spence and Tiger Aspect Product Productions. The drama tells the story of Alexander Litvinenko, the former Russian Federal Security Services and KGB officer whose death from polonium poisoning in November 2006 triggered one of the most complex and dangerous investigations in the history of the Metropolitan Police. So so it sounds like we're getting a dramatized version of a real fascinating story of a spy who was assassinated by his own government. So that should be very interesting. Uh, I look forward to that coming out on Friday on AMC and Sundance Now. I don't know anyone who has Sundance Now, so uh, likely you'll have, it, have to be watching it on AMC+. Plus. Sunday... December 18th, the big one is dropping. 1923 is dropping on Paramount Plus. It's the series premiere. Paramount Plus is offering a sneak peek at 1923, Taylor Sheridan's latest Yellowstone origin story that stars Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren as Jacob and Cara Dutton. The action picks up on familiar grounds in Montana where fans will see the beginnings of the Dutton homestead that is now featured on Yellowstone. There are also some welcome new faces on the prequel like Game of Thrones' Jerome Flynn as a local heavy, and Timothy Dalton is a wealthy sophisticate with cool wheels who becomes neighbors to the Duttons. That will probably not end well. The streamer says the series will explore the early 20th century when pandemics, historic drought, the end of Prohibition, and the Great Depression all plagued the Mountain West via deadline. So any of y'all who have been watching 1883, it's the prequel to this, which is 1923, which is the prequel to Yellowstone. So it's kind of cool what they've been doing, right? They made Yellowstone, huge hit. They said, let's make a prequel starting in the 1800s. Okay, why not make another prequel starting in the 1920s? And getting Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren, two huge stars in this, just shows how successful this series has been. Very excited to see them in this. 1883, something I've been watching a lot this month, is a great show. But it is a little bit slow. It's a little more lovey-dovey focused. I'm hoping we get a little more of that Yellowstone drama kind of crime family action going on in the wild west here it's 1883 is fascinating right from a historical point of view seeing how tough it was really to cross the plains 
but uh, I'm hoping for more of kind of what we're used to here with Yellowstone in this latest iteration. So again, that's dropping Sunday, December 18th on Paramount+. Plus. Okay, so that wraps it up for the weekly drops and releases. We have an awesome deep dive today on the history of how we came to eat three meals a day and how our diet has changed over time. So buckle up. Now in Tolkien's Middle-earth, hobbits subscribe to a hearty four meals a day plan, replete with second breakfast. Aragorn complains that they've already had breakfast and need to get going, but Pippin replies, we've had one, yes. What about second breakfast? I don't think he knows about second breakfast, Pip, says Mary. Now while four meals a day, including second breakfast, sounds amazing, today three meals a day is the American standard as well as for the majority of the world. But why and how? Was it always like this? Or did somewhere along the way, something change where it just became the accepted standard? What I thought might start out as a simple question to answer, after a quick Google search or two, actually turned out to be incredibly convoluted and full of differing opinions. Some saying it's due to industrialization, others giving credit to Europeans. Some saying Romans only ate one meal called the Sena, and then contrarians saying no, Romans ate several meals a day. Seemingly, to find the answer would require a scholar dedicating themselves to a thesis-level investigation. As a father of two with a full-time job, I'm not prepared to take on such an investigation. Rather, my goal today is to sift through reputable sources to present the arguments as they are and lay out what I think is the most convincing argument behind our three meals a day routine. So let's get into it. In a BBC article titled Recreating the Caveman Diet, health reporter Philippa Roxby quotes the head researcher at Unilever and writes, The main hallmark of Paleolithic diet was a huge diversity of plants. Nowadays, we try our best to eat five portions of fruit and veg a day. They ate 20 to 25 plant-based foods a day, said Dr. Barry. So contrary to common belief, Paleolithic man was not a raging carnivore. He was an omnivore who loved his greens. He would have gathered seeds to eat, used plants and herbs for flavoring, and preserving fish and meat and collecting wild berries. Their need for other essential nutrients would have been found in fish, while pulses provided additional proteins. Liam McAuliffe quotes a comprehensive paper by researchers at Tel Aviv University published in the yearbook of Physical Anthropology that, quote, brings together over 400 studies, revealing a picture of our ancestors spending 2 million years as hyper-carnivorous apex predators. This means that for the vast majority of human history, humans evolved by hunting and eating mostly large animals. Hmm. Right from the get-go, we are presented with opposing academic viewpoints. One, portraying our apish ancestors as essentially carnivorous and the other as plant-loving omnivores that occasionally snacked on meat when necessary. Now, common sense tells me that we probably shouldn't be writing about our Paleolithic ancestors as if they were a single homogenous group. Surely diets varied by region, ecosystems, season and bounty. Perhaps some groups had more developed hunting skills and tools than others. Perhaps they evolved at various speeds, while slower evolving units depended more heavily on plants and only ate meat when luck happened upon them. McAuliffe's paper goes on to argue that large animals would provide much more nutrition and fat reserves. Think of how plants would have to be how many plants would have to be gathered to get the same level of nutrition that an elephant or other large animals could provide. He goes on to show other skeletal and trace element evidences that our ancient ancestors relied heavily on meat. I don't know which side is correct, but if I had to guess, it would be that we most heavily sought after meat sources, the greater source of nutrition, and that we grazed on berries, nuts, and plants to hold us over between hunts or in period of hunting droughts. In other 
words, we were predominantly carnivores when we could be, omnivores when we had to be. Okay, so we have a rough idea of what they ate, but how often did they eat? Ali Patillo at Inverse.com writes, At the time, humans did not eat as much as we do now. Mark Matson, PhD, a professor of neuroscience at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine and former chief of the Laboratory of Neurosciences at the National Institute of Aging, says, There's no scientific basis for our current three meals a day plus snacks eating pattern. For the majority of human history, people ate one or two meals a day. The current time-restricted eating patterns like the 16 and 8 or one meal a day diet mimic this ancient phenomenon. While cave people may have eaten less in total, Friedman disputes the notion that hunters and gatherers would go days or weeks without food on a regular basis, calling into question the idea that fasting is natural. He goes on to say, when they went periods without eating, they weren't fasting. They were involuntarily starving. Okay. So according to Professor Matson, for the majority of history, humans were eating one to two meals a day, not the three meals a day that we have now. Well, we know it's true of ancient Egyptians who predominantly ate two meals a day, one meal that consisted of bread and beer, followed by a second heartier meal with vegetables, meat when available, and yeah, you guessed it, more bread and beer for the second meal of the day. And when it came to special occasions like banquets, unmarried men and women did not sit together and were seated according to social status. Servants would walk around like waiters with jugs full of wine and entertainment abound with dancers, drummers, and other musicians. Romans are said to have eaten only one meal a day around noon as a way to maintain healthy digestion. Eating more than one meal a day was looked down upon as a form of gluttony. I definitely would have been the talk of the town in ancient Roman times. No way I could have stuck to one meal a day. We also know a little bit about the eating habits of the Greeks, who are said to be the first to introduce breakfast into the rotation. And no, we're not talking about a grand slam from Denny's with pancakes, sausage, eggs, and hash browns. The Greeks preferred waking up to some nice, wine-soaked bread as soon as they woke up. Wine was likely a way to soften up stale bread. According to a BBC article by Dennis Winterman, quote, Beyond the ancient Greeks, however, the morning meal was not even contemplated for centuries. In the Middle Ages, for example, people were not allowed to eat before morning mass and dinner was the main meal. Although initially the concept of breakfast was exclusive to the aristocratic class, the first meal of the day, as we understand it now, would not make its first real appearance until the 17th century when the first breakfast rooms were also designed. During the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century, however, with its normalization of working hours, the habit of having both breakfast and lunch developed as a pre-working meal plus a breakfast at half day, leading to current habit of three daily meals. At that time, the first, quote, street food spots near factories started up and mass-produced food became more common. And although the three meals a day as a staple in modern times originated in Europe, it was in 1950s America that the idea of breakfast as the most important meal a day was propagated and popularized, spreading its way back to Europe. This thanks to the popularization of cereals, instant coffee, toasters, and other quick morning fixes. Now religion also played its role in defining our current eating habits. In the Middle Ages, food was not to be eaten before morning mass, and meat was only to be eaten for half of the year. Hence the English language term breakfast, or break fast. Food habits were also influenced and varied by wealth and class. In the same BBC article, Winterman writes, In about the 17th century, it is believed that all social classes started eating breakfast, according to Chef Clarissa Dixon Wright. After the restoration of Charles II, coffee, tea, tea, and dishes like scrambled eggs started to appear on the tables of the wealthy. By the late 1740s, breakfast rooms also started appearing in the homes of the rich. This morning meal reached new levels of decadence in aristocratic circles in the 19th century with the fashion for hunting parties that lasted days, even weeks. Up to 24 dishes would be served for breakfast. Nowadays, while most cultures subscribe to the three meals a day standard, there are still those who do their own thing. 
While living in Argentina, I experienced what was essentially a four meals a day system. They would have a small breakfast, maybe some cookies and hot chocolate or mate, a large lunch featuring grilled meats, asado, empanadas, pastries filled with meats, stews with noodles or rice, and of course, lots of bread. A third light meal called the merienda that may include a small sandwich, bread with dulce de leche, a caramel-like spread, followed up by yerba mate, a hot, highly caffeinated tea served with what looks like a bong, and then a fourth meal, la cena, the same name the Romans used for their one day a meal, which was a hearty dinner eaten late at night, around nine-ish. To its neighbor to the left, Chile, some farming communities in the southern region start the early workday with an early morning meal called a mañanera, which according to one individual may include fried chicken livers, mashed avocado, lemon and olive oil, sopapillas, homemade bread, mate, cafe, or tea, fried eggs with beef. Followed by a more standard breakfast, a late lunch followed by a small fourth meal called once, including light items like fruit, followed by the fifth meal of the day, dinner, usually made up of leftover lunch items. Finally, we have the Mount Athos Orthodox monks, who eat only two meals a day, each meal lasting only 10 minutes each. They also alternate between olive oil and non-olive oil days. They have been studied for their longevity and low rates of chronic disease. So while we can't say with a certainty the exact food preferences of our Paleolithic ancestors, we know that most of the great civilizations of the old world do not operate on a three meal a day system plus snacks as we do now. But as the general standard of living across the world increased, the dietary needs of workers during the Industrial Revolution solidified, and breakfast became easier with things like instant coffee and cereal, somewhere along the way we as a human race subconsciously settled, much to the hobbit's chagrin, on three square meals a day. Alright, that wraps it up for today. Thanks for joining me for episode 31 of Strangest Fiction. I'm your host, Austin Miller, and I'll see you for episode 32. Until next time. Sweet, I'm so tired, you're